0: Hello, I'm Joshua Sparrow, Executive Director of the Brazelton Touchpoint Center. Thank you for joining us for the Learning to Listen series and for today's episode with digital technology and people expert, Sherry Turkle. We created this series of conversations for change to honor the Braselton Touchpoint Center's founder, the late Dr. T. Barry Braselton. His last book, a memoir called Learning to Listen, is the inspiration for this webinar and podcast series. Eight days before his death, and just a few months before his 100th birthday, Brazelton spoke with great urgency about today's family's new concerns. New concerns piling up on top of the stresses that he'd helped families face during his 50 years of pediatric practice. Now, he said, parents are worried about digital technology and social media and about the polarized politics and hatred that have made it so much more difficult for all of us to really listen to each other across differences to find common ground. Yet we think that there are answers to today's new challenges in what every baby knows. And you'll hear more about this in today's conversation with MIT professor Sherry Turkle. As you'll hear, Dr. Brazelton's research with Edtronic and their colleagues on the earliest infant parent interactions was an inspiration for Sherry Turkle's studies of how smartphones are affecting family communication and children's development. The Learning to Listen series has been made possible by our sponsors and good friends at The Burke Foundation, First Five Santa Clara County, and Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Furnishings. Our series has also been made possible by our BTC, Brosnan Touchpoint Center communications team, Kayla Savelli, Michael Accardi, as well as Suzanne Lukasik. For today's Learning to Listen episode, special thanks go, of course, to Sherry Turkle, our featured guest, who welcomed us into her home to share her insights, and to Natalie Rusk, our friend and colleague at the MIT Media Lab, who introduced me to Sherry and to the brave new world of digital technology. Our guest today, clinical psychologist and sociologist, Sherry Turkle, is the Appy Rockefeller Mose Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology in the Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT, and the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Professor Turkle writes on the subjective side of people's relationships with technology. She is an expert on culture and therapy, mobile technology, social networking, and social robotics. Her newest book is the New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age, which investigates how our current flight from conversation undermines our relationships, creativity, and productivity. She is a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Rockefeller Humanities Fellowship, the Harvard Centennial Medal, and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Professor Turkle is a featured media commentator on the social and psychological effects of technology for CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, the BBC, and NPR, and has appeared on Nightline, The Today Show, Good Morning America, Frontline, Dateline, 2020, and The Colbert Report, among others. We are so grateful to Professor Turkle for appearing on the Browsers and Touchpoint Center's Learning to Listen, Conversations for Change series. Sherry and I began by talking about what, as one of the first clinical psychologists studying tech effects on humans, what she first saw long before the first smartphone hit the market, and long before most of us knew enough to be worried about how our, how our devices might change who we are what she saw when she first began to study our relationships with our computers.
1: People were involved with these computers in a way that wasn't just like their stereo because people kind of put a little piece of, as one person said, you put a little piece of your mind in the machine and you come to see it differently. And so I became fascinated with really two things. First of all, how, how were ideas about computation? entering into the popular imagination as ways of thinking about mind. That was important. But second, what was this new almost mind meld that people were having with this new technology? What was this new love affair of our culture Mm -hmm. with this new kind of machine? How were we projecting ourselves into the machine and seeing ourselves into the machine? My first book on computers was called The Second Self. And how was that changing how we thought about ourselves? My entrance into this topic really came out of an interest in psychoanalysis and how do ideas about mind shape how we see our own mind? And this time, to finish a kind of long answer to a short question, um, this time an idea about mind was not carried by books and people making speeches, but it was actually carried by this object. And that was, of course, very powerful. Every time somebody played a video game, they were being taught something about how an idea about mind might travel. And the first computers I studied were computers that were were stable and in their place. and and, And the kids who programmed them, the kids who interacted with them, learned to program. So they were extremely transparent. And so my first book on this topic really was, I wouldn't call it utopian, but it had a little bit of a positive spin, because I was very interested in when children learn to program, they were learning a a way of seeing their mind or thinking about, well, am I programmed? Maybe not. Maybe people aren't programmed. that's the difference between people and machines, or I have to, to what degree in my program. And I called, I called the computer an evocative object because it started those conversations among children. So children I called child philosophers because in the presence of the machine, they were starting to think about questions that really had occupied philosophers. And I thought that was very important and very positive. And then what happened by the time I got to my next project was that the machines had become black boxes, and children weren't programming anymore. They were starting to play video games where the game was just presented to them, and it said, play, (laughs) you know, go And then my feelings shifted because the conversations We're no longer, we'll hear something about which you can have a conversation. You're learning to program. You're learning to ask these questions. It was really more, how can we kind of addict you to being with this object that will compel you? And then we were left, really by the early 90s, by 1995, 96, 97, we were left with many of the questions we have today, which is to to what extent are we comfortable with kids just kind of sitting in front of objects that
0: are programming them are programming them yeah, yeah.
1: so I, so I, I stayed at the same i stayed at the same post mm. <laughs> i stayed at my listening post but the objects changed so dramatically that the kinds of questions and the kinds of issues before me developmentally psychologically philosophically terms of the good of the child, uh, changed very
0: dramatically. I, I think that's one of the reasons why you're considered perhaps the most credible critic of where we are yeah, today. Yeah, because I didn't start out a critic. Exactly. I started
1: out a little smitten. <laughs>
0: yeah. I
1: went from smitten to...
0: <laughs> no, it's going to accuse you of being a liar, right? No, yeah. no,
1: because I actually started, because I really, I really my first thing was, hey, psychologists, come here, let's study this. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Let's study this. And, and people were so resistant. They said, ah, oh, no, no. computers, ah. Oh. I said, no, 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 this is really, really interesting. I mean, I would try to go, I would, I would like try to like, have panels at psychology meetings, and nobody wanted You know, nobody was like, oh, computers, oh, And because people couldn't see that this was deeply affecting the fantasy life. Of not just children, but adults, of everybody, and um, and it took a long time to get people interested, a uh, very very long time. Well, people thought oh, it was just games, just games. You know, billions of people are spending billions times x hours a day pretending to be another version of themselves, and you're you are you not want you don't want to know. <laughs> you know, it's like.
0: So let's, let's talk about that, about yeah. where things have gone from those games, and right. what you've written and thought about with regard to the avatars, right. and where we are now, where people are um, performing some sort of version of themselves in social media, postings. those things. How, how is, is the way that we're playing with what the self is changing since those days? Right,
1: well, again, I mean, I sort of see a degradation. You know, I mean, I think that things start, things start in a very evocative, almost primitive way. The more primitive something is, the more you have to make it, the more it's put on you to make it. It's like when you ask a child to, what do you want to be for Halloween? Oh, I want to be Pippi Longstocking. If you and your child can make the costume, as opposed to going to the drugstore and there's a pippy Longstocking's kind of outfit, you know, it's, it's prepackaged, you just pull it off the carousel and buy it. The more something has happened between you and your child, and then remember that, oh, that was the year I was pippy Longstocking. Well, in the beginning, being online and being a character involved programming the hat you would wear. It involved programming the costume you would wear. It involved making the place where you would be. It involved thinking through how you wanted to present yourself, what your dialogue would be, why, who, who you wanted to be with, talking. And when people went online, they didn't have a chance to click on 15 different people they wanted to be.
0: So in the early days, back when computer games were that much more interactive. Sherry was actually excited about the possibility that they might help children to think about and understand themselves and to try out different ways of expressing themselves that would help them grow. But as the technology industry saw new financial potential for the games and devices they were inventing and selling, then things changed.
1: Um, the, the, the question that all of the, the, the entire industry was trying to ask you was how to keep you
0: literally yeah. looking down. Yeah, at the, at the conference that we were both at yeah. a couple of years ago on children and technology, Tristan Harris was there. Yeah. And Tristan invented this portal that keeps on bringing you back to the website you started from, even when you click to go other places. Right. And he says that this is the attention economy. Where we're in a race to the bottom of the brainstem, right? Exactly.
1: exactly. Yeah. And um, people don't want, uh, people don't want to be taken back to the surface. So I began to study. Well, why don't people want to be taken back to the surface? Because the things they're doing beneath the surface, when you look at them are, they're like fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I love my apps, but when you really look at what you're doing, when you go from Candy Crush to, you know, some other game and then back to not that it's, you know, it's, it's diverting, but it, you know, it isn't, uh, it, it's not a life. You know, what is it that people are trying to get away from and of course you know one of the things people are trying to get away from is the terror of vulnerability and that is really that has come uh, at all moments in the developmental cycle there are different ways in which that terror of vulnerability drives forward development Um, so right now both of us on a certain level, on a certain level, would rather be alone <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, you know, alone with a blankie in a book, you know, kind of, in the sense that um, putting yourself out there carries risk. We each could be not as great as we want to be, we each could say something that would make us feel, you know, everybody. And it has to be messy. It it's messy. And it, it's messy. It brings up anxieties. I could be not as good as I'm um, cold. I could not be as, you know, I could not be as good as I want to be. I could have later look at it and say, oh, I wasn't as good. You know, I, I didn't say this, I didn't say that. All these people, I, I wasn't as good, so we all have high expectations. I mean, everything when you put yourself out there, exposes you to being vulnerable, and we all struggle with that, and never before has there been a socially acceptable way for me to, in the middle of a conversation,
0: have a moment of feeling vulnerable and a moment where it's okay to say, you know, we need to make a call. So we've all become dependent on our phones to protect us from our vulnerability and from the vulnerability that Sherry sees as a key driver of development throughout the life cycle. And she's not the only one who sees a role for vulnerability and development. In fact, this sounds a lot to me like the touch points model of development that predicts periods of vulnerability and disorganization alongside each new step a child takes. So I asked Sherry, if she thought our new relationship with our phones has hijacked our relationships with our children and sideswiped their development yeah.
1: we as parents and yeah. teachers we are the instruments of their sideswiping we gave them these phones we gave them these technologies we as grown-ups said this is a technology you can use we are not taking it away we are not limiting your exposure enjoy it damaged them, Develop it, 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 it gave, let me not use a word to make everybody scream at me. It <coughs> limited
0: them. You talk a lot about how parents make these rules about no phones at the table, right. etc. And then they use their and phones. And then they use their phones. Or how they're longing to be able to experience intimacy with their children. And. <laughs> they can't figure out how to do it and so then they use their phone so l- let yeah. me just read these i want to make sure that people yeah. actually have some of uh, the flavor of what you've been finding in your studies so this is a middle school where the teachers say students don't make eye contact they don't respond to body language they have trouble listening i have to rephrase a question many times before a child will answer a question in class i'm not convinced that they are interested in each other it is as though they all have some signs of being on an Asperger spectrum, but that's impossible. We're talking about a school-wide problem. These things are really quite alarming, but I think one of the questions is, you didn't want to use the word damage, and I appreciate why. Um, but one does have to wonder if this begins really early and goes on for too long. Um, well, how much well, so for I wrote the book there. in 2015.
1: The book came out in 2015, which means I wrote it in 2012 and a half, 2013, yeah. 2013 and a half, revised it in 2014. In 2014, I was still trying, I was still a little namby pandy. <laughs> I would not, today, I'm bolder. People are, and there are also people, what I really hoped when I wrote the book is that people whose methodology was different than mine, would read the book and say, You know, I'm going to do some really, I'm going to go in and test young kids. I'm going to go in and test a whole fifth grade. I'm going to go, in. and that work is now, you know, which is not my methodology. I mean, I interview people, I talk to people, but I'm not a, a kind of, um, I don't do really psychometric testing. That's not, my, that's not my, I mean, I can, but it's not my gift. And um, I'm a sort of combination ethnographer, interviewer. So I take a very, you know, I kind of didn't do the sort of. I could get testimony from teachers, but then I didn't go into her classroom and, and really see if those children were on the spectrum.
0: But you talked to lots of children too. But so. I
1: talked to lots of children too. And I saw that she was right, these children wouldn't look me in the eye. As I went back to the teacher and I said, you know, you're not crazy. Um,
0: um, one sort of research is using the face-to-face, still-face yes. paradigm, which you refer to in this book, and yes. uh, which was work that began in the 1970s with Barry Braselton and Ed Tronick, were able to at infants as young as eight weeks um, in a split screen with one camera on the infant and one on the right. parent. And um, you, you talk about how um, the nonverbal facial expressions that happen in face-to-face conversations right. are being lost when we hide from our vulnerability, when we resort to texting, even when the person is sitting right next to us. So there are researchers now, and one of them is um, Kathy Hirsch who is, um, instead of using the still face paradigm, where the parent is instructed to turn away from the infant. And then they look at the infant's protests. Um, She's using uh, a smartphone and having the parent turn to the smartphone. I
1: I was so inspired by the face-to-face research and inviting
0: conversation. So following up on the research on the earliest interactions, I asked Sherry to tell us more about her observational studies of children, parents, and smartphones. And she started with an example of what she saw outside in elementary school at pickup time at the end of the day as kids climbed into their parents' cars.
1: And the children be waiting outside and the parent would come out and drive up and the child would come up to the car, and the and the mother, you know, well, here's what I did today, and right. and the mother would be like like this, looking at her phone, looking at her phone, and the child would like get into the car, and the mother would like look up for a second to make sure, like to, to do a positive ID that the right kid had gotten in the car, oh, and God. then drive off, like just like looking at the car, not looking at the child. It was and 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 I would watch the child get more and more agitated, trying to get. And then that experience of watching children get crazy agitated as they got into the car with these parents made me start to more to do observations of children and parents in restaurants, children and parents, and just parks. Children. Parks was really good. Where I did most of my watches, not just parents, but any kind of minder or sitter or nanny, children trying to get the attention of their caretaker, and they went through all of the stages of, of the, that, that, that Tronic had described, where you know first they make a lot of, first they try to be charming, then they try to be agitated. Then they try to be crying. Then they literally become vegetative mm. and give up and give up and give up because they cannot get their their parents away yeah.
0: from them. And I think in the research, if this happens um, below a certain frequency, there isn't been, which is actually a useful right. kind of stress. And um, what Ed says about these face-to-face interactions is that every three to five seconds there's an error, a mismatching state, and then a repair. And that the learning, the hard learning that we always do, is about how to make that reparation when we've missed something happening between us. It's when this goes on right. too many times for too long that right. the child learns how to become really organized around not connecting, not connecting exactly. and not shutting down.
1: And yeah. I think that that is really what I began to see. Hmm and why I began to be less surprised when teachers talked about my kids are on the spectrum, my kids are on the spectrum, my kids are starting to be on the spectrum, or in about, in the past five years, I've seen more and more kids who seem to me to be on the spectrum. This school is not supposed to be for kids on the spectrum. And I felt that they were organizing their lives, the children were organizing how to be in families where there essentially was not mm-hmm.
0: that kind of connection. So speaking of connection, I have to ask you of breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> um, Barry Brazil did this research a long time ago where he looked at mother-infant interactions during breastfeeding. And what he found was, talking about connections, that um, infants uh, have this rhythmic sucking pattern, which is predictable. Suck, suck, pause. And what do they do when they pause? They look up at their mothers, right. and mothers think, you know, they can tell the baby to get back to business. But the more the mothers talk with the baby about, you know, sucking again, the longer the pause is because the baby wants the interaction right. more even than the breast. So, you know, now we know that there are many mothers who are breastfeeding with one right. arm and on their phone with the other, and they may not even know what it would be like if. They talk to the baby, yeah, or if the phone weren't in their lives. I yeah. remember, I remember the first time I saw a
1: mother breastfeeding, uh, breastfeeding and watching their phone, and I was so upset. I mean, because you, we forget now that these things are like part of our everyday lives, mm-hmm. and this is, I think, very important. They've become naturalized, and when something is natural, you don't see it anymore. We forget how odd it was to see a woman not pay any attention to her baby when she was breastfeeding. Because now we're, or, or, or go to a McDonald's and watch a family eating their food with everybody looking at their phone and nobody talking.
0: So what do you say when, when a mother So says, when I first saw this,
1: when I first saw this, I, want, I, I watched this horrified. I knew how bad this was. I knew this was like. She's not looked the infant was looking at her. She was not looking at the infant looking with her because she was in the middle of them. She was like going like this to the thing. And I I didn't know what to do with myself. Because I, I hadn't written the book yet. I couldn't like say, excuse me, I just want to send you <laughs> can, <laughs> I, can I just put you in mind a little bit? But it was clearly so it was so upsetting to me. And now we are so used to it. And what else are we used to? We're used to we're used to mothers not paying attention to their children in playground. We're used to mothers not paying attention to their children in um, in um, it, when they're in when they're in um, playpens. And the playpens are a place where I really carefully studied, because I knew that people were going to say, to me, "Oh, mothers have always put children in playpens," and just read a book. Or watch television, and so I compared. Here's where I really did go in and do the, you know, the, the sort of much more sort of finely grained uh, observational counting and taking with the stop clock work. When a mother watches television, she looks up very frequently to check on a kid. When a mother is on is, is on any kind of device, hardly ever. Similarly for male parents and their male children when they're watching a game and they are on television and they have like a newspaper between them they talk very frequently if if the father is on a device he barely speaks to his child so all of the people who say oh it's just like it's just like it's just like it isn't true yeah and I was going to ask about that. And that gets so that
0: people are studying what is it that makes these devices so compelling, so addictive, so powerful in mm-hmm. holding on to mm-hmm. our attention. But I also have to ask about what, when you talk about parents for whom this has become the norm, um, and we talked earlier about what skills children are not developing, well, what skills are parents losing that is. Um, behind their looking at their phone and not their child when they pick them up or when they're sitting right next so Well
1: the the skills that parents and children are losing are oddly parallel. Hmm. So parents and children are losing the same skill. They're losing the capacity for boredom and they're losing the capacity for solitude and they're losing the capacity for empathic empathy and the kind and the kind of empathy that you use in conversation. But let's start with solitude and boredom, because many people kind of confuse them and think they're the same thing. So, For the child, the capacity to be bored turns out to be the key, a key developmental building block. Because when your brain, when you experience boredom, your brain isn't bored. It's laying down, uh, neurally, what's called the default mode network, which is really where your brain develops the the kind of sense of a stable autobiographical self. So you need those moments of, oh, nothing to do. I think I'll just sit and review.
0: The things that I usually worry about, for example.
1: Review my anxieties. Oh, well, I'm bored of those now. You you think you're thinking about nothing. I'm waiting for my taxi, but I don't have my phone to take out, so I'm just waiting. Your brain is actually very busy while you think you're just letting thoughts go by. And without that time, your brain doesn't do as well. So you need to learn how to give yourself what in meditation we call. Time to let thoughts come and go, time to just sort of let it be. So when you give a baby a you know a potty trainer or a baby bouncer with a slot for an iPhone, so in any moment of potential boredom, it has stimulation, you are doing that baby no favor. And as a parent, if you can tolerate being with your baby or being with your child, without each of you being stimulated, you're doing neither of you any favor. Because grown-ups need this time as well. The second bad thing that's happening is the capacity for solitude, which is a little bit different. It can look the same as the need for boredom, but it can look the same, but it's developmentally and psychologically serves a different function. In solitude, you need solitude in order to develop relationships. Because you need to be able to be happy with your own company in order to then, when you're with somebody else, be able to pay attention to them. Because if I can't stand my company, then as soon as you come along, I'm looking for you to validate me. Tell me I'm great, tell me how fascinating I am, tell me who I am, and I can't pay, I don't have any time or patients to pay attention to, ooh, ooh, yeah, so that we can establish relationships that are really based on mutual, which is really the only
0: good kind. This, for me, was one of the most brilliant insights in yes. the book, and everybody I shared it with it is just so fascinated with this idea. And the way I understood it is, it's not only about having pleasure with yourself and being happy with right. yourself. It's simply the experience of. Um, being with yourself, experiencing yourself alone in solitude, having whatever thoughts and feelings you might have as a way of experiencing yourself, knowing yourself because you can't be in conversation with someone else if you don't have yourself to bring to that conversation. Exactly. Right? Let's say I don't yeah. like me.
1: People say, Well yeah. but you know I if you don't like yourself, I say, Well that's too that's just as good.
0: And bring, you know? <laughs> that person, and bring that person take to show that, up. Yeah. Take that person. Yeah. yeah. You
1: yeah. know, everybody isn't yeah. madly in love with them. I mean, you know, take that vaguely unhappy person out to dinner, you know, and say to you, you know, I've been doing a lot of that's not terrible. If I went out if we went out to dinner and we were over drinks and say, you know, I've just been doing a lot of thinking, I've been doing some kind of life, I'm writing a memoir and I you know, and I'm really very unhappy with some of the decisions I've made. And you would say, well that's really interesting. Like, you know, what what are the decisions you've made that's that, that, that
0: a not gift, happy it's a gift, with. really.
1: And then yeah. I say, well, you know, here are a couple. Yeah. And then you, you might say, well, you know, looking back, I that's a that's a friendship. Yeah. So it's not about that you have to look back. You can only do this if you're, you know, like Mother Teresa or something. You, you can what it re- but what it does require is a willingness for vulnerability. So solitude, a willingness for vulnerability, a willingness for empathy, these tend to go together. And you are not letting this happen if at the moment that you start to feel, oh, a moment of solitude, a moment when I might have to look at something complicated, where's my phone
0: let me check the weather
1: let me check the weather and maybe let me check the weather in singapore and i hear that who's that who's that who's that you know architect in barcelona Gaudi. i'm going to look at of his stuff
0: it's over you, you've, won, you've yeah. lost
1: the moment
0: yeah and those moments are always changing too i mean you have to keep on coming back to moments of solitude to find out where you are and who you are in that yes. moment and that's who you would bring to the conversation you have yes. today, right? You also talk about um, loneliness, and one strand of the vulnerability is when you're with yourself mm-hmm. and not looking at the weather, you may experience loneliness, yes. right? And, yes, yeah. and you
1: need to also teach your children, you're talking about parenting, you need to teach your children that the experience of loneliness, first of all, well, the experience of solitude is not always the experience of loneliness. We need to start to divide those off. That loneliness and solitude are not the same thing. And it, and it actually, when people are having experiences of solitude and are creating things and are writing things, you know, I mean, I'm writing a book now and I'm spending a tremendous amount of time alone, and it doesn't feel like loneliness at all. It feels like a very constructive solitude. was like, really, you just spent. Like, Hours, you know. mm-hmm. and I said, wasn't it awful? And I, like, really, no. And it, I, it does, I don't think it makes me, I've never thought of myself as a hermit, or I think of myself as a very social person.
0: It's kind of so. It was, it was not. It
1: was good. It was yeah. good. It was good solitude. I feel very creative. But the experience of loneliness is very available to me. Mm-hmm. I have the experience of loneliness. But when I do, you know what? That's an experience too. Um, and the only thing there are many things to do about it. And the most healthy one is not necessarily going on Facebook. And that's not necessarily like the treat that's not necessarily the Best treatment for that particular problem, because what you get may not be the friendship and the conversation and the sustaining relationship that you need.
0: So let's talk a little bit about friction, because part of thing. <clears throat> part of keeping your attention is getting rid of anything that disrupts it, like uh, friction. So the goal of the tech companies is to remove friction one click and right. you bought something because they got your right. credit card, right? right? So but what you're talking about, for example, with something like loneliness or other um, feelings that are hard to have but that we have to have and we all have them, is um there there's some sticking there is there's some friction. And when you go to Facebook and you get a thumbs up, you get a like. Um, it's, it's not engaged with the loneliness that you might have been feeling that drove you there. Yeah, so it's kind of like a generic
1: it's like a kind of a generic blanket of warmth. It doesn't speak to anything specific really about, yeah, like, yeah. about you. Yeah. And we get used to this kind of like uh, when you take morphine, it doesn't take away the pain it makes you not notice that model, that narcotic model for um, how to deal with pain is actually a, a very prevalent model in our culture. You don't take away the specific problem, you just make it no longer relevant yeah. to you. And I think that happens politically, you know, you don't fix, you don't fix the thing you just somehow do something to people's heads where they're not thinking about it anymore and no longer seems to be their problem or relevant to
0: them. Uh, When I heard you talk about friction I made me think again about the face to face, the face research. Right. This notion of an error in repair every three to five seconds. Yeah. And that there's struggle there in the repair you get stuck there. But the learning happens because there is an error because you come because 'cause you've got to find where you were, where the other person was, to get um, right. uh, into conversation again. Um, That's so, so interesting. Yeah. So I thought that that was part of what you're yes. describing. Um.
1: My favorite example is, it's such a funny example. I remember a demo. It's become my favorite example because it's so funny. Is I remember a demo of the Internet of Things at MIT, mm. from the first demos I went to. this demo was of offering coffee, ordering coffee, uh, and you ordered your coffee, your cappuccino, macchino, something very complicated, and this, the whole world was wired up to your computer, to your, so it, this, you would be rooted to the coffee shop, which of course your cappuccino, maccuccino, latte, white, cat It's waiting for you. It's waiting for you. But it would root you in a way where you wouldn't pass any body you didn't like, ex-boyfriend, ex-wife, ex-husband, department chairman with whom you might have had a fight. Because the whole world would you know, we knew everybody in your relationships with everybody. And so you could get a route to your coffee shop, where you only passed people you liked, in a fris- friction-free world of where the Internet of Things could take us. And I thought that was perfect. That the Internet of Things would not, that, that, that the computer culture would not only create a friction-free world of like trading on the stock market, but it would create a friction-free world of social relationships, where you would know not what to talk to me about, what not to mention. I would know. We would just kind of glide through. And that is such a not right, that is such a not good way to live. I mean, who said that that's a good way to live? And similarly, in this wonderful image from the chronic resultant research, that it's only through mistake repair, mistake repair, that kind of we're constructing really the most powerful skill set. I love
0: that. And, and this is um, also where what's happening in our public um, world uh, comes into because part of reducing friction means that we are just in our bubbles talking to people who we agree with right. and um, are protected from talking to people who we don't agree with. And so we're stuck in this polarized world. And we don't know how to talk to them anymore.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and you watch people talking, who are clearly talking to people in their bubbles. Mm-hmm. And you, you say to yourself, I can't believe
0: that this is working. So as we began to wrap up our conversation, we turned to another aspect of digital technology but one that Sherry has been setting for decades, and one that she is especially worried about, and we closed with her call for action: We talk in a couple of places in the book about um, this idea that robots um, can pathically care for us and not. And and no, no. This, you know, this idea, this idea that they can, this fantasy, right. and um, the reality that they cannot. Right. And you know, you're very clear um, that um, they cannot. But you're also clear that there is this eagerness, right, in the wish that right. they could. Yeah, this is—you can see me getting antsy.
1: This yeah. is this is, I think, the this is my. My current fight, which I, I cannot believe this is my current fight, because I've been fighting this. I have been writing about social robotics since the 1990s. My position has been the same since the 1990s. I've been crystal since the 1990s. It's like, why are you doing it? Because we can. Like, that's not a, you know, still, that's not a reason, but that is the argument. There is no reason to build. A robot that will talk to a baby or a child and pretend that it loves them. I mean, talk about Terry Brown, I mean, there is no reason. It's what fake empathy is pretend empathy is never empathy. You're fooling the child. Now what 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 theory of psychology has ever said yeah, you can fool a child into thinking, <laughs> yeah, those, ch- those kids. You just give them a little robot look, and they just come out great. That uh, the makers of robots are, are very big on making robot companions for the elderly and for children, and you and and young children. But uh, that it's kind of like those are two easy marks. There's lots of mm-hmm. money. Uh, certainly the elderly first because nobody seems to, everybody seems to think that will be very practical and there's nobody who wants to take care of the elderly. I'm not talking about people with dementia, which is a somewhat special case, but just the weeding to the elderly and hanging out with the elderly and playing chess with the elderly. And, and So these are people who just don't need people if you can throw a robot their way. Um, and then children. Like, hey, there just aren't enough teachers, there aren't enough people, there aren't enough real people for, to relate to children, so let's just give them robots who can credibly have conversations with them. And everybody, my phrase on this is technology makes us forget what we know about life. And what we know about life is that people need real people, empathic people, to develop relationships with and to learn how to be real people. But I just think everybody who's involved in the care and working with people need to just gang together and get involved with the many manufacturers of these objects. And say, you know, this is just not something we want in our nursing homes and in our schools and in our uh, childcare facilities. And we just don't want this. This is like not a direction. I don't want your robot. Just because you can make something doesn't mean that we have to have it. This notion that just because a technologist invents something, that some inexorable process has started, that has to end up with children having robots instead of people taking care of them. This is, I mean, this is, I I work in in an institute that's filled with technologists, and the arrogance of that idea, uh, for years I felt too young to fight with them. And now I'm older, and maybe it's age, and just seeing how ignorant that position is and how much damage it's done and how it's based on nothing except they can get people to back down. This is a really bad idea that that children should have robot companions. I mean there is no, I mean this is like, this is like the same idea as what about if we had said, you know, this Mothers who were nursing, no cell phones allowed, and, you know, in every hospital where mothers are, you know, are are, 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 are being, you know, when we, when we teach mothers everything about nursing, they're giving this kind of packet, they're giving this, and the first thing that nurses said to mothers is, the worst thing you can do when you're nursing is having, is having a cell phone. You know, it was sort of this part of basic training, you know. And, and the mother would say, Oh, really? I love to have my phone. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just kind of relax? And the nurses just said, It's the worst thing for your child. And here's why. And they did this little story for the Bradley br- time. And then the mothers, when they went home, when they were tempted to do it, it would be in their minds. But they will remember that they were told it was the worst thing in the world.
0: You know, both that story and the robot story yeah. also seems about um, how we're not valuing ourselves exactly. as humans and what we uniquely contribute exactly. to our children. This world. is right. about
1: our, our somehow forgetting what we know about the importance of being human, about what we can contribute. There, This is not right. This is just not right. And it's, it's about, it, it's a little bit like we're forgetting what it means to live in a democracy? Where we're forgetting the importance of free speech. We're forgetting what it is to be a person. We're forgetting some very basic things about our humanity to each other. Uh, it, we're living in a very dark time, and forgetting what it is to to read to a child. And when you're reading to a child, you're looking at the child. You're talking to the child. You're saying, "So how did you go today at school?" So and how did you, go? How are you feel?ing You look you look a little tired. You look, it's your time, I love you, and I, I really love you, and give you a kiss, and I, have you ever felt like this character? You hear everything, you learn everything. Um, and any parent, any loving parent, any loving caretaker knows that when you're reading about um, Good Night why is Goodnight Moon so successful? It's because the child gets to identify with all those objects, and you get to talk to your kid. So, not to go on and on about this, but it is not too late to not have a generation of children raised by robots. And parents and care, led by teachers, teachers' groups, parents' groups. These are well organized groups that can say, you know, this just isn't for us. Because somebody has to buy this stuff. It's not like these things just miraculously appear on the market, you know. The people who are making this do not want to give it away. Hmm. That's for sure. The hmm. people who are making this are not their 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 uh, business plan is not to give it away.
0: Hmm. But part of the marketing is to create the sense that it is inevitable, inevitable and inevitable. Yes, and that's what we are good for you. Or good for you, right?
1: They have to first convince you yeah. before the horse is out of the barn. It has to be. You have to be convinced that you want it. You want to get on this horse?
0: I have to say I wish that Barry Brownson were with us right now. Um, he would be um, right alongside well, us. Well, we have to act in his. We have yeah. to. We have to act in his name. Wow, um, we have uh, a number of really terrific comments and questions, and I'm sure there are more. I'm sorry that Sherry couldn't be here with us to answer them. I think you'll find uh, answers to your questions in her book, Reclaiming Conversation. Uh, That was the focus of uh, my conversation with Sherry. Uh, I guess um, a number of the questions that we have are about what to do with older children's uh, phone use or requests for phones and whether to withhold them or how to limit them. And um, there also is a comment uh, that came before Sherry um, talked about her view that parents could be warned before they take their newborn babies home about the effects of uh, smartphones on their earliest interactions. So I thought I I would start just by uh, Noting that in the touchpoints approach to making strong partnerships with parents uh, We find that it isn't usually very effective to tell parents what to do or to think or what not to do Uh, and that instead uh, to um, Observe with parents their children's behavior can be a much more effective way of supporting parents in making their own decisions about uh, the kind of parent they want to be, and understanding what their parent, what their children are telling them with their behavior. Uh, <clears throat> if you take a look at the Reclaiming Conversation book, you'll see lots of detail about how uh, children in uh, elementary school, middle school, high school are using their smartphones, are using social media, and I think you will see those behaviors as guides for your decisions about how you handle smartphone use and social media use with your older children uh, and um, those of the families that you work with. Uh, One of the points that Sherry made just in the last couple of minutes is that in order to sell us these things, we have to be talked into thinking that we need these things and that we'd be missing out if we didn't have these devices and uh, that we are depriving our children if we uh, aren't making these devices available to them. I I think that there may be a backlash here as more and more concerns are raised about what devices and social media are doing to children's development. And I also think that there will be a backlash because of um, what we are coming to understand about the future of work with artificial intelligence. And I think where we may end up, if I can be optimistic, is realizing that we have to preserve what is uh, uniquely human if we are going to have uh, any chance of holding our own uh, against artificial intelligence and robots. And we have to hold on to the understanding that we have created artificial intelligence and we have created robots, and it's not the other way around and uh, we need to make decisions about how and when we use them. So in her book, Sherry talks more specifically about uh, really standing up and uh, insisting on device-free times, for example, mealtime, car time, device-free zones, like for example, the kitchen, but it can also be anywhere, and also about the importance of parents' modeling their um, restrained use of smartphones and refraining from using them when they're in face-to-face conversations with others, particularly family members. And because this has become a habit that as Sherry noted, protects us from those moments of boredom or of solitude or of loneliness or of vulnerability, um, it, it will take a lot of intentionality to move beyond that habit to reconnect with each other. I, I think probably the, the, the higher level point that Sherry makes uh, in, in this conversation and in her book is that uh, the argument that it's too late the genies out of the bottle, which we have all heard about this. But this is an argument we've heard about other things uh, that we ultimately have been able to stop. We uh, weren't there, most of us probably, but we um, can look in the history books and see that people were saying the same thing about Nazis back in the 1930s. And people needed to stand up and say, We're just not gonna let that happen. The same thing has been said about certain infectious diseases before we decided we're really gonna put all our resources behind doing the research and uh, the prevention to make sure that that doesn't happen. So um, when, when we're looking at the results of technology, digital technology, smartphones and social media, to remember that the damage that we are seeing and the damage that we can prevent. These are all um, the results of human activity. This is not coming from anywhere else. And because these are things that we are making uh, and using and buying into, we can stand up and say um, we want to limit, restrict our use of these things to where they actually have a useful purpose and without the kinds of costs with regard to our relationships with each other, our children's development, and our own humanity. If you'd like to learn more about the effects of digital technology on children's development, family relationships, on the self, and on being human, Again, I urge you to take a look at Sherry's book, Reclaiming Conversation. I really found it. uh, I just couldn't put it down. It is very compelling. And you can find today's episode and listen to more of my conversation with Sherry Turkle on the BraseltonTouchpoints.org website. To find out more about the Braselton Touchpoint Center, just go to BraseltonTouchpoints.org or you can email me, joshua.sparrow at childrens.harvard.edu. And I hope you'll all join us on October 29th to listen together to Harvard sociologist, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who will discuss her approach to listening with respect to create symmetry across differences. And that you'll come back again on November 19th to listen to Yale child psychiatrist, Kyle Pruitt, who will be talking about his research on the critical role of fathers in children's development. You can find out more about these and other upcoming learning to listen conversations for change at BrazeltonTouchpoints.org. I'm Joshua Sparrow, and on behalf of the Brouselton Touchpoint Center, I extend our gratitude, gratitude to all of you for joining us today, and for all you do, for children and families everywhere. Thank you.